Blue Wire. To the end zone he goes. Where Sammy is. Boyd with a great fake. Touchdown, Taj. Hopkins throws to Boyd. Lean means touchdown throwing machine tonight, and he's got another one. Boyd. Welcome back to the Taj Boy Podcast, and if you're new, welcome to the podcast. I got to thinking about who would be that perfect guest that you all could draw some insight from as Thanksgiving approaches, and I think I had that perfect person for you all. Now, this guy has been huge in my personal growth and maturation over the years, but he's also impacted millions of people with his story, testimony, and the books that he's written. He's written over 20 books and has sold over 4 million copies, and he is one of the most positive people that I know, but he wasn't always this way. Now, in this conversation, he talks about those defining moments and how they shaped him to be who he is today. I want you all to join me in welcoming world-renowned author, a father, a husband, and most importantly, a man of great faith, John Gordon. Here we go. All right, so right now, you're in the process of writing a book with your wife? Yes, uh, Catherine and I are writing a book called Relationship Grit, and it's about sticking together it's about the ups and downs that we had on our journey how we how we stayed together through my negativity and my challenges and my issues and she stayed with me she did not leave she threatened to leave i agreed to change we had two small children at the time so i wanted to stay married and she's like you know look i love you but i'm not gonna spend my life with someone who makes me so miserable you need to change and so i began this journey of becoming a more positive person. So it's about that, like my change. It's about how we then grew together, what we did over the years to stay together, to to become stronger as well. We we grew in our faith. We grew in our relationship. And I think so often, Taj, you know, people go through a hard time in their relationship and they just give up. Right. Or, you know, it, it's hard with the kids and they have young kids and maybe the man starts to wander or look outside the marriage. And that happens sometimes. And then from that, they then get divorced and say, no, try to figure out a way to stay together and then you'll grow together. And then over time, you'll experience the fruit of that. And now like we're happier than ever. We have a phenomenal marriage, but it wasn't always that way. So we want people to know the story plus the lessons and hopefully they can apply them in their own relationships. Well, and a part of that was just recognizing that that there was something that you needed to change. Because more often than not, I'm assuming that when people do go through these issues, it's it's never anybody else's fault, you know, kind of deal, right? <laughs> yes, that's a really great insight that you just had there because I wrote in the book, I was willing to change. And you have to be willing. You have to look in the mirror and say, okay, what could I do better? And here's the deal, Taj. You will have to change in your next marriage or the one after that at some point <laughs> if you want to be married successfully you will have to change because wherever you go, there you are. And you have to see that the problem is you. You are the problem, not anyone else. And when you can deal with that and address that, then you can begin the process of changing yourself. And then when you change, you can then change others and you can have an impact on others. Here's what I know. You know, we met with me speaking at Clemson. We met with me writing this books and Dabo bringing me in. I know this, that doesn't happen if I don't become a better human being. That doesn't right. happen if my wife doesn't say, John, I'm not staying married to someone like this. And so she made me better. Well, from that standpoint, 
when she spoke those words to you, I mean, how do you, how did you personally take that constructive criticism? Because, you know, so often, you know, people take it and with disdain and it becomes like this overlying issue that continues to just build like, uh, like you're stacking up a foundation, but it's not necessarily the right one. You know what I'm saying? Yes. I mean, if you knew someone had your best interest at heart, would you be more open to their feedback? Right. If you knew a coach really cares about you, of course you're going to be open to that coach's feedback. If that coach is always yelling at you and you don't think that coach cares, then you're not going to be open. I knew Catherine cared about me and loved me. So I think as a result of that, I was more open to it. And I also, I think, knew that, yeah, I was I was definitely the problem. Because when I was younger, in college, I had a lot of hope, a lot of optimism, and then I had allowed life and these young kids and the responsibility of providing for a family and doing a job I really didn't love at the time. I allowed all of that, all of that pressure to get to me. You know, I talk about, right, the carrot, the egg, and the coffee being now in that new book I wrote with Damon West. And I was, yeah, I was the carrot. I was becoming weakened. And I was also like the egg. I was becoming hardened by life and not caring as much. And I needed to become the coffee bean and transform. Now, at this point, I mean, what industry were you in when life was beating you down like this and it was taking a toll on you? So I had been in the restaurant business and I opened up a restaurant bar in Buckhead when I was 24, actually. And so had this this place that was successful. I had some partners and then I ran for city council of Atlanta. I lost the election, but I was still very involved in in politics and the community. I had started a nonprofit called the Phoenix Organization. and We raised money and volunteered for youth focused charities. So I was doing a lot of of the work that you do now, all the amazing work that you do. I was like doing those kind of things and really using the platform I had at the time of just being a mover and shaker in Atlanta and making a difference. I was like one of the up and comers in Atlanta back then in all these magazines. It was pretty funny when I look back. And then from there, losing city council, I went to law school and then I had an opportunity to to join a dot-com company. And I thought I was going to make my millions because this dot-com was on the rise. All the dot-coms were getting all this cash. All the money was coming in from investors. I'm like, that's it. I was in the early, you know, early stages. I was probably like one of the top, you know, actually early employees and top employees in position. And so I thought I was going to make a lot of money. Well, next thing you know, I'm working for a company. I have a boss in the restaurant business. I was my own boss. So now I'm working for someone. I have to show up to an office every day. I never worked in an office. I was always in the restaurant business or, you know, my own boss. And so now I'm working for a company. I have have, uh, quotas and progress I have to make and I have to have pipelines and all this pressure and I did not like it. And then the company started losing money. We weren't successful. So it was getting really tough. The the the, the heat was definitely rising. And at that point I, I knew that it, it probably wasn't gonna last. And it, it was very it was a very scary time. I was really fearful for me, my family, our future. Well, and it sounds like, you know, obviously you've always had this kind of innate ability to to be a service right? The servant leadership style. And for you to go into a a, a situation that was pretty much uncomfortable, unfamiliar to you to the point where you didn't even know who you were anymore. I mean, what was, you know, that's a, that's a turning of a tide. And obviously I got all these books in front of me and we'll get to that in a little bit, but you know, how do you, how does one pull themselves out of a situation like that? I mean, did you, did you rely on God and and religion? Was, was it Catherine? Was it Cole? Was it, was it, was it, you know, the whole family in that situation? 
I my kids were so young at the time. It was definitely Catherine. But yeah, I had. I, you're you're so right. I mean, I lost who I was at the time, and I had sold the restaurants, you know, to my partners because my my dividends were getting smaller and smaller as I wasn't there as much. So you're supposed to get the same amount of dividends when you're an owner, but mine were getting smaller, if you know what I mean. And so I sold back to them and now I don't have the restaurants. I now am in a job that I don't like. I sort of felt like I lost my purpose. Someone else was running the Phoenix organization. We had just actually moved to Jacksonville from Atlanta that at that time, Catherine wanted to move to the beach. So we moved to the beach. I now have this mortgage, this home that we're living in. And so Again, there was a lot of pressure. So in those moments when she threatened to leave, I agreed to change. And I began this journey of of prayer. It wasn't religious at the time. It wasn't, uh, I wasn't a Christian, but I just started to pray. And I said, God, you know, just please provide for my family. Please help me through this challenging time. God, why am I here? What is my purpose? What am I born to do? And at that moment, like really God started to work in my life. And it would be a a few more years before I would fully surrender my life to God. But that's how you get through. I mean, I really believe you get through by relying on a greater strength, a greater power, realizing you aren't strong enough. You are not powerful enough that you need this greater strength and greater power to, to get through. And, and for me, it was trusting in God that he had a plan for my life, surrendering to his plan. I used to say, God, use me for your purpose. Guide me towards my purpose. And it's funny, that's how the book started. I would say, use me for your purpose. Guide me towards my purpose. And next thing you know, these books started coming to me. And I think the more I was was open, the more I was willing, the more I was willing to be of service to, to him, that's when he started to use me to be someone who could actually do his work. I'll never forget when I lost my job in the dot-com crash. So I actually now lost a job, no insurance, literally very little savings. We put everything we had into a Moe's South, Southwest Grill that we were going to open in Jacksonville. So I decided to open up this Moe's to hopefully carry us if the if the if um, if I got fired one day. Well, I actually got fired two weeks before the restaurant opened. And now like, Everything is lost and everything's in the restaurant. So either this restaurant makes it or I am completely done. We are bankrupt. Our future seems hopeless at that point. So it was a really scary time. And that is when I truly became someone of faith. That is when I truly just had to rely on God because you don't realize God is all you need until God is all you got. And that's why I became such a faithful person. People are like, you know, why are you so faithful? Why do you believe what you believe? Because I saw God carry me. When you see God carry you through the most difficult, hardest times, and you know it wasn't you, that you didn't do it on your own, that's when you have faith. That's when you see proof of God. And that's unbelievable. That's an unbelievable transformation phase, obviously. But is this something that, that stemmed uh, from you as a youth uh, or your parents actively involved in the church as well? <laughs> I'm laughing because it couldn't be farther from that. My mom was was uh, Jewish. My dad was a New York City police officer, Catholic, Italian, who never went to church, who was uh, had to go to, you know, uh, Catholic school as a kid and was was hit by the nuns all the time. So he was not big into the Christian faith. And so I grew up with no religion and no faith. And 
as I got older, I was actually like a, a I would say a new ager in college and and uh, after college, Buddhism did a, did a lot of uh, meditation and study of Buddhism. So I was really into all of, of the spiritual things that went along with that. So I was like a, a hodgepodge of I believed in God, but I also liked all these different spiritual practices. And so yeah, I did not grow up with, with that at all. So so the fact that um, you know I became a follower of Jesus pretty much surprised a lot of people in my life and my family. Well, and it just exudes out of you. Um, you know, one of the the first time I met you, I was like, man, this guy, he has it, you know, and it's just this everlasting joy. And that's why it's so, it's so wild and so kind of odd to, to hear you say that you were just this pessimist, just this negative person that nobody wanted to be around. And it's like, you know, and the thing is, it's like, it, it was, you know, we run across these people every day. You call them energy vampires. And yep. so, you know, you try to, you try to speak it into people, you try to give them some positive affirmations, you know, whether it's a handshake, whether it's a smile, whether it's a hug, and it may not be until they actually hit bottom until they do see that change in their life, you know? And sometimes they don't change. Sometimes yeah. they, they hit bottom and they just stay there because they're not willing to change. But yes, I was an energy vampire, but I do have to correct you there. It's like I, people, other people still wanted to be around me because I had, I saved my best for others and my worst for my family. Oh man. And I think so often that's what we do. My wife would say like, everyone thinks you're great, but you're not, you know? And, and, you know, like, and then when I even early on, when I first started writing and I was going through a transformation, I would write these things, but I wasn't living these things and there was no alignment. And early on when I first started writing, I wasn't successful because I wasn't, walking the walk. I was writing. I wanted to be like that, but I was not living that way. And only when I started to walk the walk and truly live it. And that became when I, when I became a follower of Jesus in 2006, when that happened, my heart started to change from the inside out. You have to change from the inside. And when your heart changes, everything changes. Mm -hmm. And so so that's what needed to happen for me. You can't just do it, right? You want to be a good person, but it's, are you a good person? Right. What is your heart saying and telling, as you know? And so, um, yeah, you know, you and I connected definitely at a, at a spiritual level, no doubt, because when, when you, when you see it, you know it. And when you know it, you see it. Well, you know, I had this, <laughs> I had this long period and actually I still struggle, you know, and it's, cause I actually hear some of those same sentiments to be completely honest and, and transparent and vulnerable. And it's like to the point where I give what I got and then I burn out and I got nothing left for later on, you know, and it's, you know, when you're in environments, it's supposed to add value, it's supposed to add energy as opposed to subtract it. So, you know, it's kind of weird because like uh, in my mind, you know, I'm an introvert, but I, I operate and function as an extrovert. And to me, I think a lot of that is because of the position that I played, because of the environments that I had to be in. And, you know, that's something that I'm continuing to try to change on a day to day as well. And it's really just being cognizant of it. And yeah. instead of just, instead of just doing like, I want to be, and, and it's in everything, whatever I'm, I'm in or wherever I'm at, I want to be there. I want to, I want to feel a part of the whole setting or feel a part of the conversation and not be withdrawn from it. Because sometimes then I got all these things that I want to accomplish and my brain never shuts off. And so when that happens for me, my whole energy changes, my vibe changes. And the, the worst part about it is is that I wear my heart on my sleeve, right? So mm -hmm. if you see me and you're used to seeing me at a certain capacity or a certain level, 
and you don't see it, it's instantly recognizable. And, you know, that's just, that's just one of the tough parts uh, for me, challenging parts, you know, is, is trying to be everything that, that I wish I am, that, that people think that I am and actually trying to walk it instead of faking it until I make it, you know? Oh, I get it. It has to be real. And, you know, I get what you're saying because I'm naturally an introvert as well. I always thought I was an extrovert, but now I know I am an introvert and I get energy when I'm in solitude and I'm writing and I'm, and that's when I'm happiest. It's like, I'm happiest when I'm writing and by myself, when I'm in a crowd, if I'm speaking, I'm good. But if I have to talk to a lot of people, I'm actually really tired afterwards. People invite me to like the, the Clemson tailgates and stuff. And I'm like, I'd, I'd love to come by, but I've never been really good at chit chat. Like they think I'm going to be this great, like exciting person in person. It's like, no, if you hang out with me in person, you'll, you'll see I'm actually pretty boring in person, <laughs> you know, on, on stage, I might seem exciting, but, uh, but I, in person, I might come across a little boring because I'm just pretty much very even keel and, and, um, and just stable when I'm, when I'm in an environment with a lot of people like you and I have this pressure, right. To be on. And so, so clients always want to go out to dinner with me before my speaking engagements. And I actually don't like to go out to dinner the night before because I want to save my energy for, for speaking on stage. (laughs) And what I have found is that when they see me on stage, they all want to talk to me afterwards. If they had dinner with me before the event, they'd be like, why don't we bring them here? (laughs) So, so it actually worked. I've learned, with, when, when I'm at my best, and and that's okay. You have to know, you know where where you are and where you work best, and and where you bring your energy. I mean, even Jesus. Let's face it, Jesus had to take time to reach, re, uh, draw away from the crowds, withdraw from the crowds, recharge before going back. Right, right. and so if he had to do it, I think we have to as well. <laughs> right, absolutely. Now, that's some good stuff right here, John. Now. I mean, I'm sitting here and I got the stack of books in front of me and it, it's the greatest thing because a lot of these books helped me, especially, you know, during my transition from, from sports into business. And I guess to some degree, they're all synonymous in a way uh, that our approach is towards them. But as I'm looking right now, I got the no complaining rule. There's no complaining in November. At least I saw towards LinkedIn because you're, man, John, first off, you're killing on social media, Twitter, Facebook. I appreciate it. Like that is absolutely booming right now. And I'm so excited and ecstatic to see that, man, and see people learn from you as you continue to mentor people, even if you don't necessarily know them, you know, that, 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 that grace that God has shown you, you continue to show that to the people. And it just gives us all an opportunity to know that there's, there's hope and there's, there's an opportunity for us to continue to grow as well. But energy bus is obviously the one. And you got energy bus for kids. I gave that to my niece and nephews. They thought it was fantastic. Now I got The Seed, my favorite book, The Carpenter, uh, Shark and Goldfish, Positive Dog, uh, Training Camp, the newest one, Coffee Bean. First off, if you've never heard or got these books, let me know and I will send you one. I can't send you all of them because my pocket can't be <laughs> like that, you know, but we're working on it. But, you know, one of the things that, that I think you tweeted out uh, last week was that, you know, everybody asks you how you got to writing and you said you would talk about it and then you just started to do it. Right. Yep. Basically I just, yeah, one day I sat down and, and uh, just started writing. I'm like, okay, got to stop talking about what I'm writing about or what I want to write about. I got to just start writing. And so that's how it happens. You sit down and you just start doing it. 
you stare at the computer screen and you get ready to write something. I go for a walk, I get ideas, I come back, I write some more. It's the same way with working out. If I don't go work out, I'm not going to build strength. I'm not going to build endurance. Got to maintain that physical body, right? Well, same thing with our mind. If you want to write, writers write. So you got to sit down and start doing it. And we got to start taking action. So the more you talk, right, the less you do, I believe. So I believe you just have to do it. I remember my lacrosse coach in college. I went to Cornell University. We were one of the top programs in the country. We are ninth my sophomore year. And uh, Richie Moran was the head coach. He was a legendary coach in the lacrosse world. And I remember I was a freshman, actually, when I showed up. And I went up to his office after practice one day. And I said, Coach, I'm not playing well right now, Coach. I'm a lot better than this, Coach. Coach, you know, I- I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm going to start playing better. He goes, hey, kid kid he walked me towards the door he said listen we don't talk this game we play it do it on the field and he's gently escorted me out of the office <laughs> i went back to my i went back to my uh, dorm and i'm like he doesn't care about me i'm not even gonna play anymore and then and then i got pissed off I'm like yes i am gonna play i'm gonna show him and then years later he's now about 80 years old i, I saw him not too long ago i said hey coach just want to tell you you taught me that the talkers talk and the doers do you do mm-hmm. and is that where because when i'm reading training camp i hear a lot of that in that so you drew from some personal experiences in regards to that book oh yeah totally and you know i was a pretty decent running back tosh i mean i was also uh you know <laughs> we got to build for it, you know yeah recruited for f- football i gotta show you my highlight tape sometime but uh <laughs> Not not Clemson level, but but I was a pretty decent running back who was recruited Division One football, and so I I always as a running back I always you know obviously loved running backs, and it's so funny whenever I go speak to a team whether it's NFL or or college, it's funny the running backs always seem to like come up to me and want to talk. They always it's like we're, we're like dogs, you know, running backs like can just gather around each other and can connect and communicate. Same thing with the quarterbacks, am I right? Like you can spot the quarterbacks, and somehow you just seem to connect with Absolutely. one another. But but um. So I wrote about this running back in training camp who wanted to be his best and he's trying out for the NFL team and he gets injured and a special coach takes him under his, his wing and starts teaching him the winning habits that separate the best from the rest. And that happened after I left the Atlanta Falcons training camp facility, speaking to them in 2007. And when I left, that idea came to me and I'm like, that's it. I'm going to write a book about a coach and a player and the lessons the player learns along the way to be his best, the best of the best, but he ultimately can't be his best without, without God. So he has to overcome his fear and find his faith. And that was my journey. So it was very personal. And so to me, it's like the Rocky of, of books in terms of a a character having to overcome. And, you know, my dream is to make it into a movie and I I still want to one day. And I, I I have the scene where he surrenders in the coach's office and how powerful that is. And I've had more men than, than, you know, than ever just reach out to me and say, you know, you brought me to tears in that book and and with those scenes. And, um, you know, to me, that was just a really special time. And I mean, you read it and coach had the team read it oh, yeah. and talked a lot about the principles that year that he was really building the program in 2011. It was, I remember. And uh, Damian Lillard read it twice before his rookie season, reached out after his rookie year, said, hey, I want you to know I read your book twice to remind me how hard I, I would have to work to make it in the NBA. So cool stuff like that has happened along the way with that book. I mean, just the, just the words that you just said. I mean, you know, obviously speaking to us, I mean, you were part of that fabric too. Everybody talks about the foundation and, you know, you coming in and, and sharing a story and really getting our minds right. I mean, did wonders for, for us as individuals, but us as a team uh, in general. And I'm sure that you impact more people than you can even imagine, 
you know, people on the, on the other hemisphere over there. But, you know, you're, you keynote a good bit, but you're also spending a lot of time with collegiate and professional organizations. Now, you talk about the best of the best and their habits. And, you know, I'm, I think you spent some time with the Seahawks. Um, you know, Pete Carroll is a, is a guy, like I was reading this book, uh, Grit, by Angelo Duckworth. And he mentioned yeah. that as well. And, you know, you look at a guy like that, you look at a guy like Coach Sweeney, and it's, you continue to, to, to understand and talk to these companies, these CEOs, these other business leaders, these coaches, these owners. What are the similarities that separate them, the ones that are contending and the ones that are pretending? Well, one, they're positive leaders. I actually work with with the Rams, not the, the Seahawks. And, and Sean McVay right now is not doing well. Obviously, the team's not doing well. But but you can tell that he's staying positive and optimistic. Pete Carroll, when the, when the Seahawks weren't doing well the last couple of years, he was staying positive and optimistic. Dabo, as you know, always believed, no matter what they were going through, he just always believed, and he keeps on believing. He has this unrelenting optimism. Bob Iger, who is the CEO of Disney, said, no one wants to be led by a pessimist. I love that. No one wants to be led by a pessimist. We all want to be led by optimists, someone who believes in a brighter, better future and then can rally the team towards it. And so for me, they are optimists, but they're also people who practice love and accountability. They're, they're leaders who care about people and love their team members, but they also hold them accountable to a higher sure. standard. And too many leaders lead with a lot of accountability and no love. So they're always driving you and pushing you. And yet you don't really feel like they care about you. And so you get burned out, you get fatigued and eventually it, it, it wears thin. It doesn't, it doesn't work. If you then also have a lot of love, a lot of leaders lead with love, but no accountability. There's a lot of love there, a lot of great relationships and a family feel. And yet that person is not pushing you to be great. They're not challenging you to be your best. And that happens a lot too. So you're actually not doing that person, you know, all the well that all the good that you can by not pushing them. If you really love someone, you would hold them accountable to being their best and love them through the process. You need both on this journey. Well, and the people often ask me, and I've been, you know, actually speaking about it a good bit as well, as far as coaching and feedback and teamwork and a huge I think building block for us was when we created those accountability teams within the team and so we had 10 to 12 leaders I would say and we had a draft so it'd be like getting picked last to play pickup basketball if you were picked last in this accountability draft and what it was was really an understanding of each individual and their role on the team and how it just didn't affect them, but it affected everybody. It affected the masses. And so, you know, what we saw was a shift uh, of, of the mental approach. Some guys, if they got drafted late, they legitimately, they fed that, right? And then they just were total screw-ups and didn't want to perform and didn't want to get better because they believed that that's the best that they had to offer. Some guys took it to heart, and we saw this transformation. We saw this shift, and those guys were the ones that ended up leading the, te- the team in the future. And so the things that were special to me about what Coach Schwinney was presenting us as players is that, one, he trusted us. And, two, we also realized that we were an extension of him. And we knew that he wasn't faking it. We knew that he was authentic because that was the same conversation that he had, had with us when he was recruiting us in his in our living rooms. And when you understand what, who, who somebody is, where they come from, 
what makes them tick, what makes them excited. I mean, it takes everything to a different level because now it's always personal too. It's not just business. And so like you're saying, when you build it off of love with the accountability, I mean, you can create wonders. And it was like these little things. It was like these positive affirmations, you know? He would show up to every meeting yeah. with that believe sign, and, and you thought it was cheesy. You thought it was kind of cliche. And then you actually started to become that, you know? Oh, yeah. He, like, brainwashed you to believe in what was possible. That's what I say. Like, Dabo was the ultimate brainwasher to get you guys to believe. He believed in you more than you believed in yourselves, and then you started to believe. But, but did you guys play harder? for him is there something about him that made you play harder because it sure seemed that yeah way. yeah and i actually um I often bring that up too because the same thing with quarterbacks you know sometimes you'll look at a team and it's like well why doesn't this team perform at the level uh that they do when it's, when a starter is as opposed to this backup and it's because of one look you can't fake the work you know you can talk as much as you want to but if, if you're finishing last and gasses every time nobody's going to respect your opinion first and foremost because you're telling us how to lead, but you're not showing us. So you're not leading from the front on that standpoint. Um, secondly, you can't just do it on the field, right? So you got to do it in all other phases of your life. You got to do it in the classroom. You got to do it in the community. You got to do it in the locker room when none of the coaches are around. Because you can also put on a show where the coaches think that that's who you are. And in reality, we all know that you're not. And, you know, so many times we, we get a lot of that. You get it in a workplace, too. I mean, I've seen it that way. And. You know, for Coach Sweeney, man, he gave us everything he had. And so we wanted to play for him. We knew – we didn't know exactly what was going to come, but we know that it was going to be better than the situation we were prior to – that we were previously in. And um, fortunately for me, man, I, I kind of always had that structure. I mean, with my dad, with my little league coach, with my middle school coach. But with Coach Sweeney, it was so unique because in, in reality – Nobody expected him to be in that situation. Nobody expected success out of him. Nobody expected this leadership. Nobody expected this culture shift. But he did. And Kathleen Swinney did. And, you know, so many other people in his core circle. And, you know, as players, so pretty much I always like to tell the story. We played uh, South Florida. We were six and seven. So we had a losing season. And this is before I took over as a starting quarterback. And we had some players get up on that roster uh, at the end of the game, and they spoke to us. And they said, you guys will never win anything here. They're going to promise you the world. It's never going to happen. So you should just go ahead pretty much and just lay down. And Coach Winnie didn't say much. And we called a team meeting that offseason, that winter. And he said to us, he said, you could either listen to what those guys had to stay, say, or we could start a new right here, and we can build something from the ground up. And, man, to be a part of that, to be a part of those building blocks, to see it churn and get better and progress – it had a lot to do with the people that were in that room. And so we had – it was two teams in one. We had a whole group of players who weren't necessarily recruited by Bowden, by, by Coach Winnie, his era. But we had another group that was recruited by another coach, Coach Bowden, and his team. And so what we had was just this clashing of, of mentalities because, you know, when Coach Winnie took over, nobody was promised any job. And we were recruiting players, like, generally speaking – you're going to be promised something. You're going to be promised an opportunity to play. You're going to be promised to get the first carry. You're going to get promised to, to, to start at some point. But when Coach Winnie took over, none of that was promised. We earned everything. And so when you get that, a lot of guys didn't like that, you know, because they had to they had to restart. And that was the best thing that could have happened for us because it was a brand-new program, brand-new coordinators, brand-new thought process. We even wore, like, two, three uniforms. And prior to that, it was just this array of everything that was happening. So we went back to – 
the most bare, basic, simple thought process, the way we dress, the way we talk, the way we interact with one another. And that was the difference going forward. Back to the basics. That was 2011, and that's where the foundation started. That's where it all began. That's where the winning started to happen. And then I remember I came in in 2012 was my first year speaking to the team. So like it, that's unbelievable the way you're talking about it now. Looking back, like that was the beginning where it all happened because Chad was there in 2011. Man, right? and and what's what's wild about that? I mean, think about this. All right, so I wasn't even the starter yet, right? I was projected to be the starter. And we had just got rid of a coordinator. And Coach Sweeney says, hey, if you're going to be my guy in the future, I want you to sit in on these meetings that I have with these prospective coaches coming in. I mean, how powerful is that? So I'm sitting in the room with the Ralph Regions, with whoever was coming in trying to apply to be the OC. And he he took my input and my advice, or at least that's what I thought anyways. He could have played it that way. But regardless of the situation, I felt like I had some power within that. So, I mean, I gave him everything I had in the classroom. I gave him everything I had in the offseason. I never went on spring break because what he showed me was that he believed in me. And if he believed in me, well, I got to make sure that I perform up to that level so that the rest of the guys do too. And, man, it was such a powerful moment in my life, man. And, you know, obviously I I do hope to have kids here, uh, you know, at some point. And the lessons and the philosophy that I learned here at this structure, I think will continue to apply to the rest of the things that happened in my life as well. No doubt. And it's amazing how he just continues every year to keep on building on it. I was I was with some of the guys at training camp sitting at the table and after speaking and talking to some of the guys. And one was a freshman and and uh, he said um, he came to Clemson because I asked him why he came. He said he came because they love yeah. us here. And you you know it's real. He said other places they talk about it, but here it's real. And I know Coach Sweeney loves me. He goes, now don't get me wrong. He yells oh, at me. <laughs> he said, "I get." He said, "I get yelled at often." He said, "But I know he's yelling at me because he cares about me and he wants me to be great." And that is just such a different thing. And then I met a guy on a plane whose son was being recruited by Clemson, and he said, "Dabo said to him, look, we want you to come here, but you're not going to be guaranteed right. anything. You have to earn it.'" He said, "If you want to earn it, and you're worth your salt, you then you yeah. come here." He, but, and if you do, no one's going to love you For sure. like we do. We, we will love you like no other, but you're going to have to earn it. So who wouldn't want to go somewhere? They have to earn it, and they're going right. to be loved. If if you don't want to be loved and you want to be just given it, well, this is not the right place for you. And so you're only going to get the right people that want to be loved and want to earn it. That's a special Absolutely, combination. man. And you appreciate it. And it's, uh, you know, you, you ever heard of Malcolm Gladwell's like 10,000-hour rule? Love it. And, you know, and I, I believe in that 100%. And, um, you know, I remember at one point I wanted to transfer. And Coach Sweeney had got wind of it. But, I mean, like, every every freshman wants to transfer if they're not playing. You know, everybody thinks that they're a little bit better than what they are, you know. And Coach Sweeney sat me down and he said, look, I know you want to play, and you will. But you're not ready yet. But I promise you, when you step on that field, you're going to be ready for everything that happens and everything that occurs. And – Man, those were those are things that I continue to. I mean, this is what eight years removed, and they're still such integral pieces in my life because you know there's a time when I'm when I'm in new industry, I'm in real estate, and you know I'm like, man, I like I, I want to like, I want to be be great so bad right now. Like I want to be the best, you know, the agent. I want to be the best salesman. I want to be the best whatever. 
And I realized that it's the everyday things that I'm doing, the daily disciplines that are going to be lead up to those exact actions that I want. But there is a process there. And you got to continue to build on it. There you know? is. I met a guy who actually worked with Dabo when he was doing the real estate in between mm-hmm. the coaching positions. And he said, Dabo came to work every day in the office, fired up, ready to go, motivating him, motivating the office. He's like, our sales increased dramatically when he showed up. And I thought, the same principles apply, sure. whether it's football, real estate, education, entrepreneurship, life, same principles apply. And you got to earn it. You got to do the work and you got to, you, nothing's going to no. be handed to you. And I think that's why Dabo and I always connected so well, because I think we just were cut from the same cloth because I was that walk on mentality. I had to earn everything that I've ever been given and did not come from a wealthy family at all or anything. And I just had to earn everything in my life. And I think we both appreciate what hard work really does, but also what faith does. It's not just hard work. It's also having faith on the journey. There's no shortcuts to it by any stretch. Now, what you got, you got two kids, you got Cole and you got Jade. All right. And, you know, they're both in college right now, both at Clemson, go Tigers. Jade's graduating. That's right. That's right. This, is she graduating in January? In de- yeah, uh, December. Yeah, she's graduating in December. We're going up there for graduation. Hard to believe. Three and a half years. I can't believe it. It's way too fast. <laughs> but is there has there ever been a point where they said, all right, look, Dad, you're, been, you're being way too positive. All right. You need to scale it back a little bit. No, how have you helped them on their journey as well? And do they still reach out and, and seek your mentorship and your guidance along their journey too? I don't think they really seek my mentorship in terms of positivity or, or advice because I'm probably apt to just give it to them right. as a dad. But I don't think they I like. I think one day they'll be like, "All right, dad, enough." But there there have been times where yeah, they don't want to hear what I have to say, and I just respect that. Like, okay, you have to figure out life on your own. And Cole's right, 19 right. years old right now, and he, you know, at 19 he doesn't really want to listen to me too much. And so I respect that. That's fine. Find your way, figure things out. And it's going to be your journey. You're going to struggle. You're going to fail. You're going to have obstacles along the way. And in a way, I want that. I don't want to make it comfortable for them. I don't want it to be too easy for them because I want them to have to figure things out on their own because I know that's what's going to make them stronger. Absolutely. Now, as this holiday season approaches, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, I was telling you that I got a chance to be a part of this pretty special potluck here in the city of Greenville, where it was this mass group of volunteers and you know, all together we fed about 3,000 people, man. It was a beautiful thing. And, uh, you know, as, as I spoke to the mic, I said, look, you know, regardless of where life takes us, we can all enjoy this moment together right here. Now, what are you thankful for? How do you continue to to stay encouraged? And when you're walking about your life in general, and the people that you come into contact with, what are the things that you explain to them, the attitude of gratitude that continues to build shift and change in their life and their family and their community? Well, as you were saying that, I just want to say, I think it's amazing that you all did that. I mean, just to be able to feed that many people to have that kind of impact. And what I love about you, Taj, is that you're just using this incredible platform that you've been given and this opportunity to just make an impact in people's lives. You can be focused on you, but you continue to go out there and just serve others and impact the community and make a difference. And 
it's just incredible to watch, you know, what you've been doing since college. So I just want to know I'm proud to, to know you. I'm proud to have uh, been a part of your life and just to see what you're doing. So I just want to say that. And then for me, you know, gratitude is everything. Like when I wanted to become a more positive person, I started to take these walks of gratitude. That was the first wow. thing I did was take a thank you walk. So every day I would walk. And I would say what I was thankful for because I found this research that said you can't be stressed and thankful at the same time. <laughs> so if you're feeling blessed, you won't be stressed. So I started doing this thanks, thank you walk and it changed my life. It really did. Every day I would just walk, practice gratitude. And when you're doing that, the research shows you're flooding your brain and body with these positive emotions that uplift you rather than the stress hormones that slowly drain and kill you. And so each day you do that, you're feeding the positive, weeding the negative, and it's one of the most important practices I've ever done in my life. So I would say I try to live Thanksgiving every day by doing that and by practicing gratitude. I find that when I am so much happier when I am in a state of gratitude, when I am looking at other people and the success that they have, and maybe wanting that and being jealous of that, that I haven't achieved that. You know, Jim Collins, good to great. Yeah, the energy bus has done great, but it hasn't been good to great, right? So you look at someone else who may be more successful and you go, man, I wish I could, you know, have that. And then you have to realize, no, that's not who I am. That's who they are. I can only be the best me and be thankful for what I have. So whenever I'm grateful for just what I have in living my life, that's when I'm at my best. I'm at my worst when I'm looking outside. And it's so hard, Taj, you know, with Instagram and social media today, when you see these people who have such success and ama and doing amazing work, it's hard to, you know, to focus on that gratitude because you're focusing on what they're doing. And so that's a recipe for misery. But the recipe for gratitude, the recipe, well, the recipe for success and joy and happiness is to really just focus on your life, your strengths, Use your strengths, live for a purpose beyond yourself, and then be grateful for what you have in, in the moment, what you have for, in your life, and what you have in this world. And for me, it's I'm thankful for my wife, my kids. I'm thankful for my health, right? If you don't have your health, you have nothing. If you have your health, you have everything. My grandmother taught me that. So it's about having health is, is, is something I'm really thankful for. I'm thankful that I get to write these books and that people read them and they're able to make a difference in people's lives. I, I do. I'm like, God, thank you for giving me these words. Thank you for giving me these books that have made an impact. I'm just so grateful that I get to do this work. You know, I just need to be thankful. You know, I get on planes a lot and I, I honestly, at times I'm not thankful that I have to get on an airplane to go somewhere. And I have to remind myself, you get to do this. You get to go on this airplane and go make a difference. It's all part, it's all part of the the job. You're not going to like everything you have to do as part of your work. Those things are a means to the end, uh, an end to do what you truly want to do and what you get to do. So, so that's, you know, just how I live my life. It's how I approach it. It's also what, what I, uh, you know, at times, you know, struggle with when, when, when I'm not great. That's awesome right there, man. And I'm so thankful for you and, and the, the person that you are, you know, the, the person that you're continuing to become, um, because obviously you're still growing every day. You're like grass, baby. You're green. So 
<laughs> I am. Are you right? No, I am. I am growing the other every day. You're, you're totally right. You know, Cole comes home and he's like, "Hey, Dad, Gary V is the man. Dad, Gary V is the man. He's like, he he's like next level, Dad. You you just need to rise up to get to that level. Like, like, oh, thanks, Cole. I really appreciate you telling me that. And it's like, and then I go to Gary V. I go check out his Instagram. Oh yeah, he's got set like seven million followers. I got fifty thousand on Instagram, and, and then I feel like I have accomplished nothing in my life. Like nothing you know i've written 20 books so 4 million copies and yet i feel it in that moment like i have no it's i have i don't have a big instagram following so i am actually nothing and it was a real emotion i really felt like i had not achieved anything in that moment when he when he when he said that and i looked at that and i talked to a friend about it and he said such wise words he said if you feel that way imagine how many people feel that way when they look at someone else's success on social media. So I think it's what we all struggle with. And I know that I'm going to grow now to be able to teach this to others since so many struggle with it. And I'm really going to start sharing a lot more about this because this is like the new frontier that everyone's dealing with. And I think we have to help people through these challenges that they're facing with all the fear of missing out, with all the social media. And we just have to get them to focus on their life. And it's perfect that we're doing this interview near Thanksgiving because they got to focus on gratitude. That's the key. Absolutely. And that's the thing, man. Like to, the experiences that we have all together, they're not just for us, man. They're for, for the people that, that we walk with in our day to day, man. It's, it's for the kids that we spend time with, uh, when we're reading Dr. Seuss week. It's for our employees, it's for our family members. So it's special, man, because if we didn't have those experiences to rely on or to relay on, then it'll be pointless anyways, man. So John, I'm thankful for you. How can people keep up with you and your journey as well in your walk? JohnGordon.com, just J-O-N Gordon.com. And also uh, Twitter at J-O-N Gordon 11. Go to Instagram. <laughs> follow me on Instagram, please. At J-O-N Gordon 11 on Instagram. Right, one more time. Well. I said on Instagram, I said what? J-O-N Gordon, like John Gordon, 11 on Instagram and uh, and follow Taj and me and uh, make sure you give us a shout out that you that you listen to this. Taj, how many do you have? How many do you have on Instagram? Like right 89,000 or something like that. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. <laughs> have you ever looked on there and said, oh, I wish I All had time. 5 million? I'm like, I gotta, I gotta get to 100. I gotta get to 100 <laughs> first and then I'm like, I gotta get to 150 and I gotta get to 2. <laughs> <laughs> so we see that see we, we we're being real and and every and everyone struggles with this this is awesome let's do this up with john have a th- great thanksgiving man i'm so thankful for you tell the family say hello tell Catherine. i need to i need to see if she can cook too so i'm looking forward to seeing that at some point and trying that out but um uh, you gotta you gotta come here for thanksgiving because uh kg as you give her that i love that name you give her you gave her kg uh she can cook she's a good She's a great cook when she wants to cook. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. Well, John, look, man, have a great night, man. I hope people really enjoyed this segment because I think it was a beautiful deal all together. And uh, look forward to keeping up with you, big guy.